0: By any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about. The Biden administration starting a program that will allow people in the United States to sponsor uh, refugees from Ukraine. Also going to be talking about what the history of the Non-Aligned Movement and the Bandung Conference can teach us about uh, possibilities for peace as it concerns the war in Ukraine. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment Tech for the People, and as always at 3:20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move
1: on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, the Biden administration has indeed launched a program to allow U.S. citizens to accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees fleeing that U.S.-NATO imperialist war ravaged country. All U.S. citizens can submit an application through the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS, to sponsor Ukrainian refugees. And the requirements for refugees are that they must have been residents of Ukraine as of February 11th, when the war started, have a valid passport, pass security checks and complete required vaccinations. All those who are sponsored are Automatically eligible for work authorization. This program is another piece of the USCIS humanitarian parole program, whereby people who the US would otherwise probably not allow into the country are given temporary admission due to urgent humanitarian reasons. Or significant public benefit. That's what they say on their website. Now, I think the use of the word parole is weird. I'm not sure what part of seeking refuge and asylum is considered criminal as to name the process for granting temporary immigration approval for humanitarian reasons. Parole, But it feels like CIS is saying, how dare these people commit the crime of wanting to come to this country, especially after U.S. policy contributed to the destabilization of theirs. But I digress, because programs to sponsor refugees from other countries do already exist. But they are different from this new one established for Ukrainian refugees. Now, the existing programs are the Haitian Family Reunification Parole Program, the Cuban Family Reunification Parole Program, the Central American Minors Refugee and Parole Program, discretionary options for military members, enlistees and their families, the Filipino World War II Veterans Parole Program, and the International Entrepreneur Parole Program. Now, the requirements for the options for military members, enlistees and their families is directed at non-citizen, current and former military service members and qualifying family members of current and former military service members. The Filipino World War II veterans parole program is limited to Filipino World War II veterans and their U.S. citizen and lawful permanent resident spouses to apply for parole for certain family members. But if you're like me, you definitely wonder how people could enlist in the U.S. military and serve, but still have to apply for citizenship. But that's America for you. Use you up to fight the battles of the empire, then tell you, you're not good enough to live in it. And then the International Entrepreneur Parole Program is it really is just a way for foreign businesses uh, and the foreign business class to be allowed to live in the U.S. and make money for the U.S. The requirement says their stay in the U.S. has to provide a significant public benefit. But you and I know what they mean is how the U.S. government would benefit. But I digress again because my focus is on those programs for refugees seeking parole from particular countries. The one thing the programs for Haitian, Cuban, and Central American minors have in common is that the applicant, that is the person living in the U.S. who is seeking to receive refugees from those countries, have to be related to the persons they're applying to host. But that's pretty much where any commonality ends. All of the requirements are different for each program, and some of the information is really just confusing and hard to understand. And honestly, that's the first thing that raised my inequality alarm. Why does an immigration program, any immigration program, have to be different from requirements for other countries. And if they are different, what's the justification for the difference in requirements between countries? Now, I didn't check every single link, but the requirements for the Haitian and Central American Miners Program are way more complex than for the Cuban Program, and, well, come on. You know why that is. Then the fees for the Haitian Program are listed right on the webpage for that program. And as you guessed, they ain't cheap. for each person being applied for if the application is through the humanitarian program, but around $660 if the process begins through an immigrant visa. But there's no fee schedule listed on the Cuban program requirements page, even though there are links to a fee schedule where people can find out what their fees are depending on what forms they have to fill out. Is it me or is it weird to list the fees for the program for Haitians right up front, but not, but not for any other program? Seems sketchy, but I'm trying to chalk this up to bad web design and not, oh, blatant racism, hoping that people won't apply for the program for their Haitian family members when they see how much they have to pay per person. And then the Central American Minors Program has no fees associated with the application that I could find through all the links. Probably do have fees, but they're hard to find. But they do require DNA testing for applicants applying for minor children. Nobody is testing Cubans to prove the people they're applying to host are relatives of them, though. But Biden's program for Ukrainian refugees, that's real simple. Ukrainian refugees have to have a valid passport. They have to have lived in Ukraine as of February 11th. They have to have a supporter in the U.S. who can prove that they can financially support them for up to two years. That person doesn't even have to be a relative. And that's pretty much it. The U.S. is responsible for the chaos it created in Ukraine. Absolutely. But it is also responsible for similar chaos that this government has created in Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, Haiti, Somalia, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Libya. But it hasn't extended an immigration program like the one just made up from whole cloth for Ukrainians for any of those people. And you know why that is. Follow LukeMan Nation on patreoncom slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. I'm your host Sean Blackman here with Jackie LukeMan, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Albert St. John, a community organizer and immigration advocate. Albert, thanks so much for joining
3: us. Please, Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And Albert, uh, the Biden administration uh, established this week a program that would allow people in the United States To sponsor Ukrainian refugees or and to have them stay temporarily in the U.S. um, under a system that's known as humanitarian parole, which is uh, some interesting language. But according to U.S. Immigration Services, parole, quote, allows an individual who may be inadmissible or otherwise ineligible for admission into the United States to be in the United States for a temporary period for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit. Now, this is a part of a program called United for Ukraine, which is itself a part of a kind of a larger effort to temporarily resettle as many as 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Now, Albert, to me, you know, I I think it's clear in the most general sense, you know, we know that. War is hell. War is a scourge upon humanity and that it's almost always the case that war and conflict uh, 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 drive people in large numbers from their countries of origins. But it does feel like the Biden administration is sort of going out of its way uh, to give this kind of assistance to Ukrainian refugees specifically, whereas we don't see that same kind of concern and care uh, for other immigrant and refugee groups.
3: Yeah, this is something that uh, most of us in the black community would call um, playing in your face. So basically, um, they, it, they're letting us know that, um, you know, who they're currying favor for. They're going out of their way, bending over backwards to assist these folks in Ukraine. And granted, I, like, and, and it's not to say that um, folks don't need assistance. You know, I'm mm-hmm. all for yeah. helping out um, refugees coming from conflicts, especially conflicts that you helped start. Considering that the United States had its hand in the 2014 coup, and and um and edging uh, NATO, to, uh, I'm sorry, Ukraine to join NATO, but uh, in addition to that, right now at this very moment, that the, just today, um, the Biden administration is fighting to defend Title 42, the Trump era um expulsion terms in which they used to expel people based upon. Uh, you, you're using the, uh, using COVID as a guise to say, oh, well, we're not going to put them through a court process. We're just going to go ahead and expel them, um, because of, uh, you know, they're, they're coming from a place with an infectious disease. Um, ironically, that coming from a country that has 25% of the world's COVID deaths and, and not doing anything to really in earnest to stop it. So, you know, the Biden administration in 2021 expelled 1 million people under um, uh, uh, Title 42 in the past year. 13,000 of those were unaccompanied children, a practice that they said that they would, that would stop with the Trump every He campaigned on that. And then, mind you, these people are coming from countries where uh, the conflicts are de- directly related to U.S. actions in their countries. We saw what happened with Haitian immigrants on the border. People were fleeing conflict uh, that started with a U.S. Uh, puppet president that was put in place, and there was practically a civil war in Haiti since 2018. I don't want to call it a civil war, but it's been an uprising in Haiti since 2018 civil unrest. And that was directly at at the cause of the U.S. And now you have this um, assassination of the president and still yet you are deporting Haitians at a record clip. You're deporting all these black and brown immigrants coming at the southern border at a a record clip right now. And and, and the judge, um, a judge in Louisiana, I forget his name, is fighting to strike down that practice, the strike down title 42 and the same, literally in the same breath that Biden is allowing U.S. citizens to sponsor Ukrainian refugees. He is fighting to defend his deportation and removal of black and brown people that are trying to get to the U.S. fleeing conflicts that the U.S. started in their country.
1: And Albert, aside from the clear disparities in the way the Biden administration is continuing to treat black and brown immigrants, immigrants from countries that the U.S. uh, has created conflicts in, like Yemen and Afghanistan, there is also the issue of who is approved for application to sponsor a refugee. Now, there are programs, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we said a few minutes ago, to sponsor refugees from certain countries. But Mm -hmm. the application process or the requirements for those applicants, after, Mm -hmm. you know, just giving a cursory look at the requirements, are really onerous for applicants Uh, Applying for uh, to host people from certain countries, not so stringent in others, but none of them are as lax and just kind of open and free and put your name on a mailing list and, you know, we'll make sure you have a job so you can financially support these people from Ukraine policies that exist for applicants of, uh, you know, applicants in this program that Biden just created for Ukrainian refugees. So, I mean, can you speak to the differences in even the requirements for applicants who are U.S. citizens um, to apply for hosting refugees that's also just already terribly unequal, but even more glaringly so with this program?
3: yeah well that's the thing so um one of the one of the reasons why we still have so many undocumented people in the United States to this day, especially since after nine eleven is because it's become extremely hard for um family members to even sponsor their own um when uh coming to the u s so many people have to be able to get residency through things like marriages and things like that. It used to be that um you know if I had a um a brother or a, a child in haiti for example and i wanted them to come over it all i had to do was fill out an application and we go through like a process and after five years they become a u.s resident they struck they took that all away so people so so regular um immigrants um, or rather immigrants who come from other countries they don't have that recourse anymore a uh, majority of them to be able to um even get sponsored by their own relatives turning relatives to actually turn down and turn their backs on um, the immigrant families because um, they're not able to support them or help them find a pathway to citizenship in this country. But now you have this situation with Ukrainian refugees and to be fair, I haven't looked closely at the criteria for um, uh, people sponsoring the Ukrainian immigrants. But I see how they're making it readily made. They're making the information accessible. They're making it so that you can go through portals and and do this application, something they've never done for any other group of people fleeing conflicts. And they're really giving them an alley-oop, it seems, to be able to, uh, you know, be in this country lawfully and not have to fear things like ICE and law enforcement, like black and brown immigrants do.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you've mentioned earlier, Albert, uh, you gave the example of Haiti in terms of how uh, U.S. interference and regime change operations impact Uh, a lot of people uh, in these countries and how that uh, certainly uh, creates a lot of migrant flows. And you also mentioned NATO a little earlier in terms of its role in uh, the current war in Ukraine. And this is what Sort of really bothers me about this whole piece because you're correct when you say that people who are fleeing these conditions do need these resources and they absolutely do. But if we look at sort of the real motivation for the United States, which claims that its involvement in the war in Ukraine, in terms of, you know, funneling all these weapons, literally sending billions of dollars just to support this uh, uh, war effort, a war effort that will be felt. Most acutely and sharply immediately uh, by the Ukrainian people on the one hand and while also doing this uh, this this program, this uh, refugee sponsorship program uniting uh, for Ukraine. I mean, to be honest, it just sort of feels like a kind of cynical, almost like a PR campaign. Um, that the U.S. is engaged in here uh, basically to continue to drive the narrative that uh, it's put forth to the American public and to the world. Uh, uh, about its involvement in the war in Ukraine, you know, supposedly being centered around a desire to, you know, promote uh, uh, democracy and human rights and things like this. I mean, but I got to say, it seems to me, Albert, that, you know, the U.S., the West are sort of, I mean, opportunistically using uh, the Ukrainian people, you know, almost as pawns for sort of their own geostrategic interests, which I think just makes uh, this whole situation uh, that much more glaring, you know?
3: Oh yeah, most definitely. And that's it and, and, and that is the thing. Um like I mean all of us who who ended up here were used at pawns at one point by the United States for their own gain in in our respective regions. Um, the difference here is that they have to give concessions to white people that they've played as pawns. You know, um and yeah, clearly they definitely uh were uh, uh even right now they're using Zelensky uh to um to really keep pushing this uh, war. You know, the more they keep sending weapons over there, the longer they know that the war is going to last even longer. And so, and then by allowing Ukrainian refugees to come stay here, what they can do then is sustain a more prolonged war, you know, whereas, where, where they won't have a situation where, like, like, um, our people or, or, or brown people in the Middle East and Latin America, where they have to end up in, um, refugee camps for years on end. So they're going to accommodate. These folks, while they're playing them as pawns, unlike us, who they'll let languish in refugee camps. And clearly also, like, they're, they're finding ways to violate the 1965 uh, Immigration Act without, doing, without really saying clearly um, that that's what they're doing. You know, the 1965 Immigration Act, for those that don't know, was part of civil rights legislation that black Americans actually fought for and allowed for the diversity of immigrants that, um come into this country today. That's a whole other conversation that we could have around anti-blackness and immigration. But that's another story. But, um yeah, pretty much this is like a clear, clear thumbing their nose with the 1965 Immigration Act. They're clearly um letting us know that, hey, look, you know, white supremacy is a thing for us and we're just going to have to accept it. But they're also um, making sure that they can sustain um, this war um, and, and try to prolong it any way they can. And I believe that's part of the reason why they're accepting so many Ukrainian refugees and allowing them to um stay here Um, indefinitely and and giving them a holly you can stay here.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I do wonder, Albert, if this uh, issue, these disparities between these humanitarian refugee uh, programs could be a point of organizing for us to address these very issues, uh, the issues of unjust immigration and the issue ultimately of U.S. imperialism. I
3: mean, most definitely, like, they're, they're, I mean, the, the framing has to be very clear about um, about this. Like if anybody in the immigrant movement is not clear that, um, you know, your, your your struggle is tied in with black liberation, your struggle is tied in with fighting white supremacy, then I don't know what to <laughs> say to them. Um, I, I often don't rock with too many immigrant groups because they want to leave the racial aspect of um, of this out of it as long as Trump is not involved in it. You know, and so um, but the thing is, is, but particularly for black people, this should be a point of organizing. And that's what I'm primarily concerned with is people of African descent here in the United States. They um, for uh, for us to start coalescing together and understanding that we are fighting the same beast that um, and, and to create a united um, pan-African front um, with each other. Like, forget all this F.B.A. and Ados BS that exists online in the real world we're all black and um, we are all being treated the same way, regardless if we're trying to cross the southern border or regardless if we're riding down the New Jersey Turnpike or wherever, you know, so um, I think that it is definitely uh, a a point of organizing for us. I think it is definitely a point for us, a a moment for us to really understand truly um, who the enemy of our people is and who um, is really oppressing us um to see that with clear clear with a very clear lens
0: absolutely and, and i couldn't agree more albert uh the african diaspora should be united, should be standing in solidarity and organizing with each other to fight against these systems and institutions that oppresses us all and I would go so far as to say that anyone, even if they're black who tries to uh, uh, disrupt or to throw a monkey wrench in the relationship amongst the African diaspora is in fact a real enemy. Well, we thank you so much Albert for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio spunnik and Watch T D C. D.C. We'll be Right back. So please stay with us
2: by any means necessary.
0: Welcome back by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here with jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're talking about how the history of the non-aligned movement can inform a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Roger McKenzie, a reporter for The Morning Star, the world's only daily socialist newspaper in the English language and the General Secretary of Liberation, one of the oldest human rights organizations in the United Kingdom. Roger, thanks so much for joining us.
4: No, no problem. Real honor to be with you.
0: Definitely. And, you know, Roger, it, it really feels like we're in a dangerous moment uh, in global politics, uh, certainly as it contains the uh, war in Ukraine uh, following Russia's invasion. As we see recently, you know, NATO countries uh, like the UK and Romania, Netherlands, Canada and Germany uh, recently uh, pledging to supply even more weapons to Ukraine. Uh, The Biden administration here in the United States uh, pledging billions of dollars uh, for the same effort. And uh, I feel like uh, what we're seeing, certainly in the U.S., is a desire to really drag out uh, the war in Ukraine for as long as possible. I mean, here recently, uh, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin uh, told the press, quote, we want to see Ukraine remain a sovereign country, a democratic country able to defend its sovereign territory. We want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it cannot do the kinds of things it has done in invading Ukraine. Now, it seems like any Anyone who's, you know, even remotely sort of familiar with uh, how the issue has been unfolding at least since 2014, I think sort of sees this notion of the U.S., you know, supposedly caring about Ukrainian sovereignty and democracy sort of for what it is. But I mean, Lloyd Austin here, you know, admitting that uh, ultimately what the U.S. is interested in is a defeat in Russia. And even in recent weeks, we've seen uh, U.S. President Joe Biden openly talk about regime change in Russia and how, you know, Putin has to go and all these sorts of things. And a strange trend has emerged in the popular consciousness in the U.S. and I think in the West in general, Roger, about how basically you know, diplomacy or peace negotiations are treated as non starters or as if they're not options in this whole situation. And I mean, personally, I tend to feel like the U.S. and NATO have been actively actively scuttling any real efforts towards uh, peace negotiations here. And, you know, you recently published a piece on People's Dispatch with a friend of the show, Dr. Vijay Prashad, talking about the history of the non-aligned movements and the different peace movements throughout history. And even the Bandung Conference of uh, 1965 as sort of models, if you will, for uh, what a real sort of diplomatic uh, uh, effort and peace effort would look like in this situation. And so to begin, Roger, I was hoping you could sort of break down a little bit the history of uh, the non-aligned movements. And uh, what do you think it has to tell us today as the war in Ukraine rages?
4: Well, I think there's um, there's quite a a few things to pick out from 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 what you've just said, Sean. Um, I mean, I think um, one of the things about the situation in Ukraine um, is, of course, that it's not the only conflict going on in the world, and I think that's one of the things that's often deliberately i think um kind of where people are deliberately kind of misdirected really there's about 40 conflicts going on across the world at the moment um and and yet the one in ukraine and i'm not diminishing the importance of um, what's happening to the people on the ground there at all um but the fact is that when you see reports that talk about these people look like us with their blue, blue eyes and blonde hair, um, and how this is. Um, the, you know if you looked at the news I'm pretty well right the way across the West at the moment, certainly in the global north, you would think that there were no other conflicts taking place, and yet you know for the last seven years, Yemen has been bombed back into history somewhere and, and, and so that for me, is a starting point about the duplicity. Um, of the nations of the global north and the way that they've treated um, um, the conflict. Um, And and that does take us back, I think, to Bandung and the non-aligned movements because these were real genuine attempts to find a different way, to find a way of breaking out of the, the old kind of Cold War kind of approach, Um, because essentially what we're seeing at the moment, in in my view, is an attempt to, um, for the United States in particular, um, using its its allies, using its control of NATO um, to exert its monopoly power position within the world. So when you start to see um, you know, the kind of Brit nations, so Brazil, Russia, India and China, um, even with their differences in politics across all of that, but when you see that taking place, um, the the United States sees that as a as a real challenge to its own authority. When you see the um the friendship, I mean inverted commerce that exists between Russia and China, they see that as um, as a threat to their monopoly power. So, so what we need to do, I think, and this is the lesson for me that we learn from Bandung and we learn from the Non-Aligned Movement, is we've got to break away from the old kind of Cold Wars because in a world of Uncertainties. There are some real certain things that we do know of. One of the things we know of, Sean, is that um, yesterday there was a report came out that said that for the first time in first time in human history. trillion in military spending across the globe. $2 trillion. What we also know is that 41 million people across 43 countries of the 190-odd, whatever it is, countries um, in the world are teetering on the brink of famine. So in the end, it's a question of priorities. It's a question of where you want to spend your money. Do you want to spend it on Warfare, Or do you want to spend it on welfare? So then you have to start thinking, well, how do we break out of that kind of vicious cycle? Well, we don't do it by carrying on in exactly the same way that we've been doing, because it's simply not in the interest of the United States and the major capitalist countries around the world. To, to, um, to, to do anything other than to, to be in the grip, be in the, um, in the pockets of the major, um, armament companies and in the pockets of big pharma and in the pockets of big agriculture. And we've got to find a way of breaking out of that. And we don't do that by playing their game. I think we only have a chance of being able to do that by creating a different game, the one that we tried to establish through Bandung, the one that we tried to establish through the non-aligned movement, where the countries of the global south, by the way, and, and it's a majority of the countries in the world who are who have not signed up to this war in Ukraine. And why would they? Because they'd be looking at it and saying, "Well, we've been on the receiving end of NATO's aggression, and for years. Why, why would we suddenly turn around and support them? But when all of those countries need to get together and to um, organise a new way of doing." Um, business that is not dependent on the old kind of Cold War um, antagonism. So that that's where I think, Sean, that um, Bandung and the Non-Aligned Movement is very um, instructive for us.
1: And you know, Roger, one of the things that you just mentioned that the fact that you know where a country's priorities should be, whether they're going to spend it on war or social spending. That came out of the Bandung Conference. But particularly in the context of nuclear proliferation, because it was after uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the the growth of uh, uh, the pursuit of nuclear weapons by the world's superpowers, where people in the conference were asking that very question, why spend money on nuclear weapons when money should be spent on classrooms and hospitals? And here we are having the same discussion about the exact same issues. But interestingly enough, the issue of nuclear weapons is not in this current conversation of where the U.S. and and its allies' priorities lie. So so do you think there is a concerted effort to obscure the threat of, of a nuclear conflagration with the continued imperialist push by the U.S. and its allies? Or, or is this just kind of a strange, uh, another kind of uh, uh, an offshoot of this kind of fog of world war, where people are so deeply indoctrinated to be beating the drums for war in Ukraine that they're not even really thinking about, wait, we are talking about nuclear superpowers here.
4: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we are in a really dangerous situation at the moment. We are, you know, one wrong move and there could be a nuclear conflict because um, one of the fogs of war, if you like, that's been created, I think, is that um, there's not a clear understanding that... The conflict that is taking place in Ukraine is really a proxy war being conducted by the U.S. and NATO and, and you know, the U.S. and their NATO allies, basically. But NATO is the U.S. Um, and, you know, and and, and I think that um, that is a dangerous position to be in because they that these NATO allies have decided that they can conduct their wars in somebody else's country against another nuclear power to try, and as, as Sean was saying at the beginning, to, to try and weaken um, a, a nuclear power so that they um, don't um, threaten their superiority. And I, I think it is such a dangerous position. One of the other really dangerous positions out of this is that um, the whole way that um, peace is, um, you know, when you talk about peace as a, as a peace activist, certainly in the UK, you, you, you are denigrated, you are talked down to, um, people... Um, say no. The priority here must be to defeat Russia at all costs. Uh, and when you start to say things like, "Well, okay, but you know what happens?" The way that every single war ends is that people have to sit around a table and have a and, and there's a, a, a peace settlement that's reached, and that requires people to to have goodwill, sit around the table, and frankly. Um, the the US and NATO are not showing goodwill at the moment because what they're saying is that Russia must be defeated at all costs instead of saying we must find a way of being able to um find a peaceful settlement um to this um conflict and 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 you know, I One false move, we could be seeing uh, a nuclear exchange Um, and certainly the campaign for nuclear disarmament in the UK is very, very concerned um, about the situation that we're in. The, The proliferation of military spending that I mentioned earlier on, massive amounts of that is nuclear weapons. Massive amount. Um, and, you know, the arms companies, um, so powerful, um, are, are wanting to sell more. And this is fertile land for them when that they create this whole hostile environment where they can sell their weapons to people. And, and it just worries me, as I know it worries so many um, people, that um, we could end up very, you know, far too easily um, with a nuclear exchange taking place. It's so a worrying time. Yeah,
0: and you know, I'm just wondering, Roger, because here in the United States, when when you raise the points in the context that you have about uh the character of NATO and uh the history of uh, all what's uh, bound up in the current war in Ukraine, which is a lot, in the US uh you're basically accused of deflecting from the issue. Uh, At best, and at worst, you're accused of uh, some kind of slavish uh, allegiance to Uh, Vladimir Putin or uh, the Russian government. And so I'm just curious, how is this sort of playing out amongst uh, some of the progressive elements uh, inside the UK? I mean, it definitely seems as though, you know, anti-war and peace groups in the U.S. uh, seem to be taking different um, sort of ideological attacks uh, one way or the other. But I'm just wondering sort of what that looks like uh, from your perspective.
4: Well we still have um a thriving um peace movement in the u k um we we organise successful not just demonstrations but there's um vigils taking place and we we challenge the narrative um about nato um but when we do challenge the narrative about nato we're still um we're, we're shouted down and we're told that no the target you know there's no excuse for Um, Putin's um, invasion of of Ukraine, and Putin was absolutely wrong. The man's a gangster. He's he's running a gangster regime um, out there, but um, that doesn't also excuse the fact that NATO expansionism um, has cornered um, um, Russia. They were warned um in advance that this was going to happen not just by peace groups but by um senior politicians across the world but they chose to do it anyway they chose to um expand um to the to the borders um of Russia and if you um uh, surround Russia, and, and you talk down China, and you create a hostile environment with China as well, then there's there's going to be a conflict. And the role of the peace movements, and, and I think we're holding up pretty well um, in the UK, is to, um, it's the same people who have always been um, campaigning against war, who've always, who are Still continuing to campaign against um, this particular war. Um, you know, when, when we, um, you know, we we will continue to do that. We will continue to build our numbers. We look back to what happened during the Iraq war. um, And um, we remember that we were in a minority position then um, with people, um, you know, going all kind of gung ho. But we brought people round and we moved people on. And I think that's what we can do again. But what we can't forget about this particular situation and i do think this is important is that we can't forget the racial elements to this we cannot forget that this is that this conflict is taking place in europe it's therefore seen as being much more important than any of the other um, 39 plus um, conflicts that are taking place across the world That's why so much armament is going there um, and, and why there's very little talk about what's going on elsewhere. And the historic role, it seems to me, of the peace movement in the UK, as I hope it is in the UK, in the US, is to make sure people understand that about all of these wars and about the political nature of these wars and how they play out across the um, in in terms of the geopolitical ambitions of the US and NATO um, in the world to create this unipolar um, axis of power Um, and our job as the peace movement is to have that dialogue with the people is to build our peace movement and to add the political dimension to this. It's not just about pacifism. This is about and as important as that is for me personally, but it's about making sure that people understand the political nature of what's going on here and that the oligarchs are making money and out of this from the West. The Western oligarchs are making a vast amount of money from their sale of armaments um, and we we must um, raise our voices and say that it's time for a ceasefire just in Ukraine, but across these other 39 conflicts as well, and that we need um, to prioritize peace um, over warfare.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Roger, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we we'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and the co-host of the Reboot podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Oh, as always, great to be back with you. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. And of course, Chris, I mean, the biggest uh, story in tech right now is uh, Elon Musk uh, uh, carrying through this deal to buy Twitter for a uh, reported $44 billion. Uh, of course, uh, Elon Musk, one of, if not uh, the world's richest man, of course, known for being behind Tesla, someone who has expressed his uh you know, how much he enjoys, you know, coups and regime change and things of that nature. But I mean, I just want to know your your top line thoughts here about uh, this whole issue, Chris. I mean, a lot of people, I think, seem to be perhaps concerned about uh, what Musk buying the company may mean in terms of user experience and all these sorts of things. But uh, how's it striking you at this moment?
5: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have concerns about this, but I want to just step back for a second, right? And look at the reality of this situation is that Elon Musk was able to borrow $25 billion in various ways uh, and then put a bunch of his own money in to get this $44 billion together. I mean, I don't know anyone I could borrow, you know, let alone a billion dollars, a $1,000 from, uh, <laughs> you know, he, and to do this basically, uh, you know, uh, effectively almost a takeover, right? The other thing is, you know, it's not, Just that Elon Musk is like, I own Twitter now. Elon Musk had to get the Twitter board to agree to this. And so what does that say about the board of Twitter? They don't care particularly about the platform. They care about their profits. So Elon Musk is potentially going to be taking Twitter private. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, the stock exchange actually uh, halted trading of Twitter uh, stock because of just the massive amount of activity given the news. I mean, we found out in the morning that these negotiations had been happening, and we'd probably have a, an answer. And then Monday afternoon, all of a sudden, there it is. The alerts are coming in from everywhere that uh, he's just going and straight, straight up buying Twitter. On the network itself, I, I think we can look at a lot of the responses reinstate Trump started trending uh, make Twitter great again so of course a play on make America great again Trump's phrase campaign phrase uh, also started trending. So I think you know we're seeing the way that Twitter users in particular are viewing this um, this acquisition. Now I, I, we do have to point out that this isn't done. He doesn't own Twitter just yet this deal is going to take about six months to go through. And there is a non-zero per chance, percent chance that this does fall through, that something goes wrong, especially considering, you know, just the, how Elon Musk goes to business. I mean, we have seen him fragrantly uh, violate, you know, federal law, um, you know, in particular, you know, laws around, uh, you know, stocks and, and you know, forward looking statements when it's in, you know, an investment. I mean, he, basically told the uh, the SEC, you know, that he didn't care about their regulations. And in a settlement, he actually had to have a lawyer approve his tweets for a little while. So is this going to happen? Is this going to happen in six months? You know, I think that remains unclear. I think there's honestly a good chance it does. But we can't forget that, uh, you know, this uh, still has to go through a number of legal processes. The other important thing about this uh, purchase, though, is actually the effect it's going to have on Twitter employees. There are already some folks saying, I am not going to work for Elon Musk. I will leave. I will go to another company. But yesterday, Twitter announced that uh, they are going to continue paying out their RSUs, restricted, restricted stock units, which is just one of those other ways other than cash. Um, you know, basically you own stock in the company, but you're not allowed to cash it out for a certain period of time. Even though the company will be going private, Twitter is going to continue holding the RSUs for their standard vesting period of four years. So if you've been working at Twitter for less than four years, and maybe you have, you know, a decent amount of money in these stock options, um, and you leave because of this, which I wouldn't blame anyone who does that, you lose. All of that money you still have. You still have gotten your salary, but you're losing all of that potential money that you could have gotten uh, after four years when your RSUs are completely vested. I think the the last thing to talk about and uh, about this and going back to the question of, you know, the response that people had on Twitter and what was immediately trending uh, is what would Elon Musk actually do for Twitter? I think he would certainly look towards reinstating Trump. I I think that is something he would consider doing. Um, You know, Trump, of course, very shortly – you know, after January 6th, but very close to the inauguration, was removed from a number of social media networks. Facebook has already said that they're going to, you know, they'll revisit it every so often. Twitter uh, basically said it's a permanent ban, but permanent doesn't matter if you're changing ownership. So I really think, though, looking at the, the big, big picture. This one man borrowed a bunch of money, billions of dollars from banks, and decided that he was going to purchase a massive social media network that millions of people a day rely on in order to communicate. This shouldn't be in the hands of a small board uh, of directors. It shouldn't be in the hands of Elon Musk or, you know, uh, a bunch of corporate shareholders. This should really be in the hands of all of us. This should be in the hands of the people who use it and the people who are impacted by it uh, and not up to the whims of Elon Musk.
1: But Chris, that edit button that he is going to give us makes up for the coups and his threats uh, against union organizing at uh, at Tesla and the possibility that he could now use the platform that he's about to own to further crush um, uh, calls for union organizing. I mean, and the fact that, you know, he has all this money that he Owns that he has himself, and that he could borrow to buy Twitter, but he didn't use any of that 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 money to feed any of the hungry people around the world. But Chris, that edit button is going to change everything for us, right?
5: I mean, you know, he may change a whole lot of things. One of the policies he has floated in the past is the idea of a real name policy on Twitter, which scares me. Uh, You know, basically, you would have to verify your identity to be able to use Twitter. Now, look, I use my real name on Twitter. It's my face up there, my profile, my name's up there. That's my choice. But many people don't want to or can't safely use their legal names uh, and identities on Twitter. We're talking about sex workers. We're talking about activists and human rights workers. Um, we're talking about queer people who maybe live in a, a, a household or a city or state where they or country. Because remember, Twitter is global, where they could be punished in you know in many ways for this. So this whole idea of a, a real name policy, you know, in exchange for an edit button. Look, I make a lot of typos on Twitter, and when I do, those tend to be my most popular tweets. Unfortunately, um, but you know what? I think if the public owned it, we could have a debate on whether or not we wanted an edit button uh, without Musk. <laughs>
0: definitely and uh, moving on a little bit here uh chris uh, there's also this issue of uh, Instion, which is a, a, a company known for uh, smart homes and things like that, uh, seemingly shut down uh, before sort of a reappearing online here recently with uh, a statement. I was looking at a piece on this in ARS Technica. Um, could you help us understand uh, what's happening here with uh, What What is their tech and what's happening with these latest developments?
5: Yeah, Insteon is one of these smart home companies. You know, you can use an app to turn on your light bulbs and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And we're seeing this proliferation of these kind of companies. I mean, the Nest was one of the originals, that smart thermostat, right, that you could program and adjust from your phone. The problem with the majority of these is that you're you're relying, even after you purchase this product, on the servers that the company runs being there and being accessible, uh, all of a sudden, Insteon uh, and its parent company Smart Labs just disappeared. They're, they did not exist anymore. They shut their servers down, and if their servers are shut down, then your smart home devices aren't going to work. The app can't connect to the server. The light bulb can't connect to the server, and so it basically becomes as. You know, as useless as the $2 light bulb that you bought at the store if you wanted to, you know, work it remotely, you know, rather than the 50 or or $100, you know, so-called smart bulb. And this is really the problem with this proliferation of this type of company, but also this kind of service in general. I mean, you know, going back to Twitter, Elon Musk could decide, hey, I'm going to shut down Twitter. And we have no say over that. And all of a sudden, everything is gone, right? And so I think when we're looking at the situations with companies like Insteon, um, and, you know, let's Consider even the biggest ones. You know, a decade and a half ago, no one thought MySpace would disappear. And it's a completely different site than it is now. Um, these companies, you know, have no obligation to their users to maintain their services. Insteon says that basically the global pandemic caused it to shut down. There were supply chain interruptions. There were what they say is, quote, unforeseen disruption to the market. Um, and then they decided to shut down because they couldn 't find a suitable buyer, but who suffers for all of this? not necessarily the investors, but the people who have bought their products who like the idea of having a smart home and you know being able to turn on their lights from you know before they get home things like that i mean they 're very cool technologies, but the people who bought these products are now the ones who are actually suffering for it,
1: yeah, always the case that uh, the 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 end user loses out when the corporation decides that it uh, doesn't want to or can't provide services anymore. And you know, a little bit of a pivot back to union organizing. Apple workers in the Atlanta store are the first to formally seek a union. And I think this is a big deal for another tech giant, but for another reason, uh, where Apple store workers are finally saying, look, we do great work, but we want to have a seat at the table to negotiate our pay and benefits better. So what is happening with this organizing and how is it going?
5: Yeah, this is huge. Uh, this is a store in Atlanta where just a week ago or so they did file their petition, and they have about 100 workers at this store. They're working with CWA, the Communications Workers of America, which is one of the unions that's really been pushing uh, a lot of the tech and also tech retail um, you know, kind of organizing. Apple retail workers are classified differently internally at Apple than Apple corporate workers. So you might think, okay, Oh, Apple is this, you know, extremely valuable company. It goes back and forth with others being the most valuable company in the world, but extremely rich company. um, You know, it's got this really cool kind of persona, you know, this brand identity, um, but it treats its workers very poorly in the retail sector. Uh, For example, I mean, some workers in other stores, you know, during the worst, you know, worst parts of the pandemic, had to fight and threaten to go on strike just to get proper COVID precautions in their stores when they opened back up. Things like masks and hand sanitizer uh, and temperature checks for customers. And that wasn't consistent from store to store. So for a company like Apple, you know, that everyone, you know, Everyone is touched by their products. And when you go to the Genius Bar, when you go to the Apple Store, I mean, you have this, you know, they really push the friendly, great customer service and experience. The folks are helpful um, to treat these frontline workers this way. There is no excuse for Starbucks, Apple or any of these companies to be doing that. And so seeing this this movement from the Apple retail employees. And also there is backing, by the way, from Apple corporate employees who are saying, you know, we want to support this. We want to help out. We don't think it's fair that this company who we make run along with our fellow retail employees uh, is treating anyone this way, it's a significant step. And I think it's also it's, it's not just about the labor. It's also about shattering the myth about the cool brand or the friendly brand, which has always been an issue with Apple. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining
0: us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: By any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, April 26th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, liberate by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. <clears throat> and if you would please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's
1: right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 320 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. But you can also listen to our shows at Sputniknews.com slash radio and type in by any means necessary at the plus sign. Also on Sputnik.com. Mave.digital M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, five days a week. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live and remember folks at 3:20 p.m. Eastern Time you can call us at 202-521-1320 that's 202-521-1320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we want to hear from you. We most certainly do,
0: we most certainly do and uh you know Jackie uh we were talking a little earlier about um the movie The Batman uh which uh, has recently been released on Streaming services after being in theaters, and I haven't seen it yet. I plan to, but you said that you had seen it and maybe weren't super impressed by it. I'm just sort of generally curious about your your thoughts about uh, the Batman movie.
1: They did a lot of ridiculous and made me turn my television up to a volume around twenty, so that when there was finally an explosion, it scared Bruce and he nearly jumped out of a window. So I think he's still traumatized by the movie. Otherwise, it was terrible.
0: (laughs) Well, here's my question. This was I was mentioning uh, to you earlier, saying about how, you know, there was a serious issue with the whispering in the movie. What did you make of their portrayal of uh, the Riddler? Because, you know, as a kid growing up in the 90s, you know, I remember... Uh, Jim Carrey playing the Riddler, and, and I was a huge Jim Carrey fan, of course, from the the Living Color days. And I mean, you know, Carrey was wearing like a like a green like bodysuit, like skin tight bodysuit with black question marks around it, and his he had his hair spiked up red with like the crazy uh like a hero mask and, and stuff like that, or you know, just basic mask He's obviously not a hero. But I mean, in the Batman movie, it seems like they were trying to make him to be like a I don't know, like a hackerish kind of, you know, very 21st-style century kind of online uh, terrorist type. So, I mean, w- what did you make of how they sort of, uh, how they portrayed the, the Riddler character in the film?
1: I, I thought that it was, it, it reminded me too much of the way Lex Luthor, a young Lex Luthor was portrayed in the Superman movie, which... He was kind of an annoying tech bro kind of thing, which which is another reason why I didn't like it because it was just another play on this, you know, trope of people who, yes, are annoying in real life, which is why I don't want to see them portrayed <laughs> on, uh, in my favorite, you know, superhero kind of movies because they are annoying in real life. I I, I need Joker to be... You know, maybe not as as ridiculously, uh, you know, outlandishly cartoonish as Carrie uh, as Carrie, uh, Carrie played him in the that last Batman. And I think the only good thing about that movie, honestly, was the soundtrack. And I wasn't I mm. think that was the movie that Prince did the soundtrack for. Oh, really? and that was I think so. And that was that was fabulous. That was great. But that was the only thing great about, about that movie, quite honestly. I mean, so it doesn't need to need to be, you know, the over the top kind of ripped from the comic books from the 60s and 70s kind of portrayal. Um, But but also kind of trying to identify the characters with the kinds of uh, folks that that, you know, are the the constant ire of, of everybody who's on social media. Mm. I I don't think that works too much either. I I, I don't want to, I don't want to have to identify. This is the thing with villains, Sean. I don't think we need to identify with villains. Mm. I I think we should either like the fact that they are really good at being villains and, and they actually might have a, a valid reason for being villains, like Killmonger, who, you know, some people said he was a villain. I happen not to think he was or Thanos. I mean, it's terrible, but Thanos kind of had a point, you know, but I, I don't think we need to identify with villains. They just either have to be really good or you just really hate them. That's the point. But I, I think that it's it, what I see in a lot of these uh, comic book movies is Directors trying too hard to humanize mm. the villains. Yeah, and I, I get there's a lot of social commentary in comics, which is you know something that I think a lot of people miss. But I think it's easy enough for us to draw the inference uh, the inferences between anything villain comic book villains do to anything real life villains do today. That was like the whole point. Of villains, I think being uh, presented in a cartoonish way, but they do things that reflect some of the real evil that happens. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think I think these directors are are trying too hard to develop the characters of the villain, as opposed to developing like the actions of the villains. I, I think the whole the way they did the whole. Uh, uh, the riddles. I think that was neat. I, I like that. But but the character, this guy, he just oh, he was just so additionally annoying. He wasn't like menacing. You know, there was no, you know, impending dread that was coming from him from him. You weren't afraid of what he was going to do next. He was just like every time he popped up on the screen, it was just like, oh, God, not him again.
0: definitely well we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by john jeter an award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent radio and television producer bluesologist and decolonizer and author of the book flat broke in the free market how globalization fleeced working people john thanks so much for joining us
6: Uh, thank you for having me sean and jackie
0: absolutely well i'm glad we have a uh, decolonizer on the show today, John, because I wanted to uh continue our conversation about um Elon Musk and Twitter. Of course, Mr. Musk comes from good colonizer stock there uh in South Africa. Strong colonizer genes we see uh from right. this one. And um and apparently the, the superhuman ability to like grow your hairline back. But we're not we're not gonna get into all of
6: that. Uh <laughs> if if you have enough money, Sean you can do anything. Hey
0: Hey, look here. Mother Nature uh, comes for us all at some point. And, you know, for me, I I just embrace it. But hey, you know, billionaires do all kinds of wild stuff because they have access to things we don't. But but I, I am generally curious, John, about what you make of, you know, this whole deal with Musk and Twitter. I mean, I see people on Twitter and social media in general, sort of uh, uh, toying with the idea of finding alternative platforms and things like that. And I don't think there's you know, necessarily anything uh, wrong with that per se. But in truth, I mean, I'm not really sure how much uh, with Twitter in terms of its functionality and things like this uh, will actually change. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously it remains to be seen. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, but I kind of feel like you know, the 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 keys to this particular capitalist kingdom are basically just kind of switching hands. You know what I mean? I don't know, um, you know, what it could actually mean in terms of what the site will look like uh, itself, but uh, definitely curious your estimation of, of all of it, John.
6: No, I, I agree completely. I, I'm not, um, I don't have a heavy presence on Twitter. I don't use it. I don't, I can't quite confine myself to 160 characters or whatever it is now. Uh, I'm used to the long form. Uh, of writing but um, I don't see what difference this will make I, I would hope in a country that uh, perhaps had a more robust discussion about democracy and ideas that this would spark a conversation about uh, public ownership uh, and why are these communications companies, Facebook and Twitter and all the rest, why are they owned by a handful of billionaire investors? Uh, why can't the public own it? Wouldn't that sort of safeguard the public interest a lot better? Uh, but there seems to be no, uh, you know, the United States, we've been dumbed down for so long. We've basically had this very narrow conversation about how to make rich people richer while a little bit trickles down to us. That has become sort of unquestionable, and so this whole debate about Elon Musk, I don't see how he will make things either worse or better uh, for uh, the country as a whole. Um, and, you know, it's really just about his own deep pockets and lining them further. And by the way, you know, a lot of a lot of Elon Musk wealth is 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 a, a, is accrued from him being able to borrow money at very low interest rate, very low interest rates to buy his own stock stock in, in in Tesla, right? So, again, we talk about sort of, you know, um, the public interest and the public good and um, Elon Musk's access to private bank loans at very low interest rates. And, you know, how does that benefit uh, the Commonwealth? It doesn't. And yet there's just no conversation about this. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, agnostic about Elon Musk's purchase of, Uh, Twitter, you know, I mean, you know, he is the son of apartheid South Africa. So I would imagine uh, that things will improve for uh, the average uh, American. uh, But at the same time, uh, you know, I don't see how he's going to make anything worse. I guess they, they fear the the critics fear that he will allow Trump to use the medium again. But I don't see how that will worsen the debate or the discussion in the United States. I don't see how it can get much worse than it is already.
0: Yeah, and real quick, Jackie, because he just talking about you know Elon Musk and his uh, South African roots. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been this whole ridiculous conversation online about Elon Musk, uh, you know, as a quote-unquote African American or whatever. But someone called him uh, an apartheid American on Twitter, and I thought (laughs) that that
6: that that fit him pretty well. But sorry to jump in, which may which may be a tautology in itself, right?
1: (laughs) Right. This, (laughs) This is an apartheid state. I, I did not know about people trying to call him an African American. Which it, it, it's oh. really, it's
0: really right wingers just
1: trolling. That's yeah, all I I know. Oh my gosh. I mean, and and I think that fits right into what you're talking about, John. The fact that we in this country have been dumbed down so much by the constant indoctrination from the cradle to the grave that these discussions about what people are hoping Elon Musk would do. Uh, you know, like protect free speech on the platform. Which, look, any platform in this country that uh purports to uh, uh, you know, protect free speech, they all ban people. (laughs) They all ban people because there's there's always someone for some reason that they point out and say, well, free speech, but that right there, that's a bridge too far, (laughs) you know. And the people who are making those decisions are not actually the people using the platform. I don't care what anybody says about. Facebook's ridiculous oversight for that, which I swear is just another algorithm. But I mean, people are talking about speaking of algorithm, like the the potential for Musk to make the uh, algorithm that downmarks tweets open source or, or, or to make it public uh, and showing how the algorithm may work in potentially biased ways. I mean, making it public, John, I don't think makes any difference in how it actually works. Will there be any input from the public in changing the algorithm? And honestly, why are people even having this conversation now that Elon Musk has pretty much gone on the path to buying Twitter? How come people weren't having this conversation about Twitter ever before? Right. (laughs) Like when all of these other people were banned. And and why why, why are people just having this conversation now?
6: And the and the open source proposal, it reminds me of the of the of the trope is tantamount to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I I don't know how that's going to improve our democracy such. I mean, what we really need is a platform for the more radical, particularly black voices that have always provided Uh, the country, uh, or or whenever we have sort of begun to dig ourselves out of a hole, it's because of these radical voices, typically black. Where where is the platform that is going to have Daruba Ben-Wahad on, where where millions of people can hear his ideas, his experience? You know, uh, uh, where are these—where is the platform going to have Kathleen Cleaver on and, uh, 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 you know, uh, Elaine Brown? I mean, we just don't—we don't have—we don't have that—we don't have access to that experience and knowledge and so you know we're flooded with elon musk and 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 who's that boy they they joe rogan and uh you know and and, and my favorite academic Adolf reed who says racism no longer exists um so you know we we've got much bigger fish to fry than uh, who owns twitter
0: that's a fact and uh shout out to uh, Ricky Ryan in uh, the means Necessary Chat, who made the uh, same point that you did a moment ago, John, when they said, and also you're leaving, talking about Twitter, is missing the point, which is privatization. And that's the truth. When we look at these big tech companies and how, um, uh, you know, they've effectively sort of taken hold uh, of that space. And also, I just got to say, anyone who believes that a, bil- uh, a multi billionaire, You know, uh, Elon Musk is one of the richest individuals on the face of the planet. Some say he's the very richest. So if you think that someone like that, someone of that class orientation is going to buy a platform like Twitter uh, just to champion, quote unquote, free speech, I think is an absurd thing because. Go ahead, John.
6: No, I was just going to say, and you know, this is a man who, and I don't know much about Elon Musk, right? I just, I I sort of tune people like this out, uh, people like him and Jeff Bezos, they sound like all the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? But (laughs) but this is a man who championed the coup in Bolivia, right? Who tweeted, you know, we'll coup whoever we want, we want, right? I mean... How you can believe that this man is going to be some sort of champion of free speech, and yet he's also a champion of, of a coup against uh, the indigenous population of Bolivia, which is majority indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't quite follow the logic. That seems to be a non-starter to me.
0: Yeah, and you know, well, I mean, the answer to your question is sort of uh, I think a misunderstanding of you know the ruling class and their relationship to uh, imperialism, and uh, also this this notion that you know a rich individual or some consortium of rich people can somehow defend uh uh so-called free speech rights or a free press when in truth you know they're willing to tolerate uh, certain things up into uh, you know the the right of free property and their right to be multi-billionaires at the expense of uh, the labor of countless people. You know what I mean? And the reason I know that is because we're in the United States, a country that is controlled by that very same uh, class element and that controls the education and defines what um, history is at an institutional level and controls uh, media or information. I mean, there are Basically, six media companies that control like ninety percent of uh, the media that the U.S. uh, that the people inside the United States uh, sees, and and I'm not just making that up. You know, people are free to sort of search this for themselves, but you know, this includes uh, Comcast, Walt Disney, AT and T, Paramount Global, Sony, Fox, and so on. And so, uh, if you live in the United States, you could flip to any number of Uh, news channels or or uh, consume any number uh, uh, of media platforms on your phone and other such devices. And you may think that you're consuming a, a a variety or a plethora of different platforms and perspectives and analysis and things like that. But in truth, you're just sort of you know, uh, picking and choosing from like this buffet of ruling class propaganda. I mean, it's just like if you walk into a grocery store and, you know, you walk down the aisle and you see all the different flavors and brands of potato chips and uh, uh, breakfast here and all these sorts of things. And you say to yourself, man, I have so much choice. But in reality, you're uh, similarly looking at the offerings of just a few companies that own the majority of these brands. And so it's the illusion of choice that's all going into the same pot. And as it pertains to the corporate-owned media here in the United States, it gives the illusion of choice when in truth, it's all just the same uh, uh, sort of ruling class uh, propaganda that is pummeling people's consciousness um, on a constant basis. So you have that on the one hand, while on the other hand, along with the stranglehold that uh, the ruling class has that the uh, capitalists have on information is also the very intentional suppression of alternative media platforms, which we're living in the moment of right now. You know what I mean? And so it's this sort of classic thing of where the people of the U.S. think they have a quote unquote freedom of something. But in truth, These supposed freedoms and these choices are very much uh, circumscribed by the fact that we are yet in this uh, uh, capitalist system and society where this wealthy elite of people uh, uh, control what we define as true and untrue. You know what I mean?
6: it's yeah, exactly right. It's uh, the, the, the late great African-American scholar, uh, Cedric Robinson, uh, used to write, used to talk about how, you know, the guns and the weaponry, that's for the black working class, right? That's how they control the black working class. But the way they control the white working class is through culture, is through uh, this ability to narrate the world, right? And that's what we see. In uh, this sort of very narrow debate about, you know, who, which billionaire is going to own Twitter. I mean, and these are, it's just everywhere, it's inescapable. And if you've ever stepped outside the bubble, as I know you and, and Jackie both have, you realize how there's a much fuller debate about everything. Are in other parts of the world, be it Venezuela or Brazil or or Argentina or, or or even Western Europe, which of course is still inside the bubble, but there's still a tradition of sort of uh, uh, intellectual inquiry, right? And so, uh, you know, just it's just simple things. I remember once um, speaking of, of of just this idea of public ownership. Uh, I think it was during the when the pandemic first hit, and the Brooklyn Nets basketball player Kyrie Irving, who I swear is the most hated. Uh, athlete professional athlete in the world he suggested that uh the nba be owned by the players and he was mocked for that well what why is that a bad idea why would it be bad for the workers to own the the actual labor that they are responsible for producing why why do a few uh billionaires who mostly who are kleptocrats right uh uh who who have made money through uh, real estate scams and, 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 and subprime mortgages, things like that. Why are they allowed to to own the NBA? They don't. They can't shoot jumpers. They can't dunk. They can't. You know. So, but we can't even have this discussion. It's just sort of openly mocked in the United States, and that's really to our detriment. And um, uh, that's going to have to change if we're ever going to sort of address, uh, ever going to face this very very deep hole that we're in.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to a quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
7: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie LucMon. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. Myself and Jackie Lumon continue to be joined by John Jeter. And John, we left off uh, talking about The propaganda that is peddled uh, to the American people on a constant basis, uh, which is what really shapes uh, so much, well, I mean, consciousness in general, I mean, uh, certainly as connected to sort of um, opinions on individual issues, including, of course, the war in Ukraine. I mean, uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin recently told uh, a meeting of military leaders inside Germany that Ukraine's, quote, resistance has brought inspiration to the free world and even greater resolve to NATO and that uh, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, quote, Never imagined that the world would rally behind Ukraine so swiftly and so surely. And see, this this is sort of what I mean when I talk about the ability to define reality or to define for an entire nation of people. And I think more importantly than even that, a a class element of uh, those people um, that uh, not only what the, the U.S. Is, is doing is correct, but in this particular case of the Ukraine war, putting out this notion that, quote-unquote, the whole world is basically going along with the uh, Washington consensus as it pertains to Ukraine and as it pertains to Russia by extension. And so these sort of regime change policies from the United States, and I think we can safely call it that, given that Joe Biden, the president of the United States, said that Putin, quote, has to go. If that's not calling for regime change, I don't know what does. Um, so out of this uh this effort to drum up support for that regime change and for the sort of general containment and encircling of Russia that has been happening for decades at this point. These are the sorts of things that are said and repeated till they're understood as true. But what we've been pointing out, uh, John, is that, you know, the the Euro-American axis and all sort of attendant vassal states and junior partners, or as I like to call it, Uncle Sam and his little friends, you know, they're trying to put it forth as though, you know, these countries basically define the reality for everybody else. And I mean, even if you look at the breakdown of votes at the UN General Assembly around, you know, sort of formally censuring Russia and uh, things like this or or the the role of Russia and, you know, and these other sort of United Nations bodies around human rights and things like that, Uh, you know, I just feel like it's a much more complicated picture once you really look into how uh, some of these different governments have been responding. And so it's clearly not just sort of a uniform lockstep sort of thing, particularly, I think, When you look at the African continent, when you look at Latin America, when you look at Asia, it's not that uh, uh, cut and dry, particularly when you're talking about countries that, uh, you know, uh, have had the experience and may be experiencing right now the sort of uh, 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 the sharp end, if you will, the lancing arm of U.S. imperialism and a number of these different institutions. And so it's when you have a corporate media apparatus that is in lockstep with uh, the line of the government, well, this even further cements uh, this narrative as reality to millions of people in the United States. Not doing a great job uh, boosting Joe Biden's uh, numbers, I think I should say. But they definitely seem to be doing a yeoman's job in sort of drumming up this uh, sort of anti-Russia uh, sort of narrative that really just completely robs the whole situation of relevant context, but I mean, how do how do you sort of see that issue playing out in terms of these media narratives and the impact it has on politics here domestically?
6: It's it's ironic, isn't it, that we have this really breathtaking communications technology, as we were just talking about with Twitter and you know these 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 uh, new this new media that allows us to communicate with people all across the world, uh, you know, within seconds. And yet we are, as Americans, we are, I don't know if we've ever been so misinformed about not just the world, but even ourselves, the kind of contextualizing the United States and in, 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 uh, uh, the, the global landscape. We just don't seem to have a clue. And so, you know, what is happening right now, there's a tectonic shift, right? I don't know how long it will take, but there's a tectonic shift from, West to East is going on right now, right? There is uh, uh, the power is is is, and it might be a back and forth, right? It's not always these things aren't linear, as 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 uh, Lenin would say, you know, uh, history moves in spirals, right? Revolutions move in spirals, and so it might be back and forth. But that's what we're in the middle of, right? That's what we're seeing happening. So, for instance, I've not seen it reported anywhere in, in the American press and in, in in North America that. Pakistan is in full revolt right now. The people are inflamed by the coup against—the U.S.-backed coup. Uh, How do we know this? Well, uh, Imran Khan himself, the the, the toppled uh, democratically elected president of of, uh, Pakistan, has said it was engineered by the United States. Why? Because he would not comply with the United States dictates to him and to the country a nuclear-armed country, I think the fifth largest in the world, um, and he would not comply with their dictates to uh, shun Russia, to 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 demonize Russia at the UN, right? And and, and uh, India, uh, which is doing the, the the most populous democracy in the world, 1.1 billion people, uh, is buying oil from Russia, oil and gas from Russia in rupees, which is just. You know, uh, 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 breathtaking, really, in its scope to think about that, right? China, uh, 1.4 billion people, is firmly backing Russia because they understand that they're next up, that that actually they are the actual target of the war in Ukraine, right? It is is, they're trying to circumscribe uh, 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 China's growth, China's ascent into the pole position in the world e- economy. And so, you know, it's this, it's this um, you know, I, I, I quote Gramsci a lot because I, the more and more I sort of, the older I get, the more I sort of understand how prophetic he was, right? I mean, we are truly in the interregnum. The old is dying and the new cannot yet be born, right? And we've got these morbid, uh, 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 characteristics, right? Which is war and poverty and, and 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 brother against brother, right? Because that's what we're really seeing. When we're talking about, uh, you know, basically different tribes in the world, but it's everywhere. You know, I mean, Sri Lanka is is is. I mean, they're not just bankrupted; they're facing a humanitarian crisis. Why? Because they follow the. The the formula for economic reforms as laid out by the United States, the World Bank, the IMF, right? So they're in they're facing a full throated humanitarian crisis. They they don't have enough to eat. Uh, Greece is 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 basically entering uh, is nearing the 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 end of uh, basically uh, almost fifteen years of suffering at the hands of the West, the United States and the EU because they have. Uh, deindustrialized, they have uh, opened their markets to world trade, killed their own industries, and impoverished their people. Which is which is uh, something that Germany, especially, but also much of Western Europe, is going to be looking at because they're talking about not buying Russian oil and gas, which they get very cheaply, right? And so they're talking; of, they're having a conversation now about deindustrialization. And I think people need to understand that's the key to. Uh, industrialization, even though, of course, the the industry has done a uh, has done a horrific uh, job of polluting our, our, our environment, but still it's the key to development, right? If you can industrialize, you can spread the wealth around to the working class, empower people, empower democracy. And so this is really the key, and this is what is at the heart of uh, Ukraine. Uh, the crisis in ukraine the crisis all over the world i think you know I, i'm very curious to see what happens in brazil uh in their presidential elections which i think is next year i'm very curious to see what happens going forward in argentina uh uh in in, in south africa because they've got this crisis that's born of deindustrialization or industrialization that never happened because of the uh, economic dictates of the West and the United States. And this is the fulcrum upon which everything turns, and yet we don't have any discussion about this in our media. They just don't, they don't know to ask these questions as we just talked about with Twitter. You know what, why do we have an entirely privately owned economy? We have a privately owned healthcare system that essentially makes more money, which is their goal. Their objective is not health but profit, right? They make more money the sicker we are not, they don't make money by making us well. Right. They make want more money when we're sick. We keep coming back to them. Why don't we have these discussions? And, of course, again, we come back to Gramsci. Their their power lays in their ability to control the culture. They control the debate and they narrate the world to us. And we just, you know, too many of us, present company clearly excluded. Too many of us just, you know, we just regurgitate what we've been told to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the depth of the propaganda. But, you know, uh, again, I think this is sort of indicative of the depth. Of this uh, incessant propaganda faced by the American people, where so many important aspects of issues like the war in Ukraine are not only not mentioned but like actively demonized and stigmatized to where if 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 you raise this a relevant political or historical context, then you're seen as, you know, supporting or justifying uh, Russia's invasion. When in truth, the main point is, is that it's just quite obviously not this cut and dry thing that has been put forth to us. And and it leads me to uh, uh, a question, John, about, uh, I guess, sort of the way we think about journalism. You know what I mean? Because, you know, I've been through J school and they teach you about uh, objectivity and things like that. But, you know, these corporate owned media platforms, especially these ones that have been around for a long time, like The New York Times and and others sort of uphold themselves as, you know, the the ultimate arbiters. Of you know, what is accurate and what is truth and all those sorts of things really weaponizing this idea of objectivity. But I was recently reading an article where it was an interview with um, a cat who was the editor of uh, Prensa Latina at the time, which is like a it's like an international anti-imperialist news service that was uh, based mm-hmm. out of Cuba. And he was saying that We're object. We are objective, but we're not unbiased. Right. Like those things are not uh, one in the same. And so what we're sort of faced with a lot in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how this media is sort of consumed is. It's portrayed as, you know, objective and therefore, you know, free from, you know, any criticism or political bias or anything like that. But when you note that these platforms are ran by the same uh, wealthy elements, well, then that seems like it's hardly the case. But, yeah, uh, John, uh, any any uh, if you any way you may want to respond to any of that uh, random rant I just had feel free.
6: No, it, was, it wasn't random at all. It's been on my mind a lot. You know, I, I graduated from Florida A&M University's journalism school in 1987, August of 1987, and uh, you know, journalism in the United States has never been great. It's it's uh, it's it's had moments, right, where they produced. Uh, The media has produced knowledge, has produced understanding, has produced storytelling that helps us understand and make sense of the world, but that's never been the norm. Um, But still, the the world that I entered into in 1987 was one in which the goal was storytelling. It was reporting, not what the mayor said or the, 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 the governor said or the president said. It was taking what the mayor said, the governor said, taking what they said, going down to the street and asking people if this was true that was the that was the whole point right because that's when you have a democratic discussion you 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 it's storytelling based on the, the reporting at the grassroots right that's how you learn that's how you grow that's how you judge reality and it's also it's so important because through storytelling this happened and this happened and then this happened right we can we can weed through our bias right we can we we, we because our bias doesn't matter. We're telling you, we're telling you what actually happened. Now, of course, we're still the gatekeeper. We make choices about, you know, the stories that we're going to tell you. But, but that storytelling, right? We we we're really saying, okay, you be the judge, right? And 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 so that's just a much more productive conversation. Now, I'll, I'll just give uh, one example or a couple examples very quickly. Um, uh, there's a piece I, to me. it is the standard for. Uh, really what's missing, but also just for international reporting, uh, the massacre at El Mazote, which is written by a journalist named Mark Danner. Uh, I think he's at Berkeley now. Uh, 1993, it was about a massacre in a village in El Salvador during the height of the Cold War in the mid-80s. And it is 22,000 words, and I swear to God, if you start to read that article, you will not get up until you finish. It is just breathtaking but it's 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 all the people from that village telling you what they saw what they experienced what they felt it was spooky that's what one of the women said right Tell me where that exists in in American journalism today. It doesn't. Doesn't exist anywhere. You know. To, you know. Uh, you know. I, I think war reporting is tricky because, of course, it's dangerous. And as Ben Bradley used to famously said, "You're no good to it's dead." Right. So you know that becomes more difficult in real time in a place like Ukraine. Right. But how can we don't have? Uh, how can we don't have much reporting from uh, 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 real time reporting from the conflicts in uh, Yugoslavia? Right. Well, there's there's so little. Uh, news about—that was a that was a power grab and a, and a land grab, and that was the United States grabbing for itself industries and breaking up Yugoslavia, grabbing for itself industries and market share, right? But we don't have anyone telling that story. So that's where we're—that's the failure of journalism today, right? It is, it is purposely, by talking only to the Secretary of Defense and the, the Ambassador, not talking to you know, the, the ad, not just hand-picked Ukrainians, many Ukrainians, right? Because it's not just one or two who agree with what you say. It's not just confirmation bias. It's actually talking to a broad base and getting, getting the, the idea of what's really happening here. And so, last example I'll give you very quickly. I remember going to Venezuela in 2003. I was covering for uh, a reporter who had gone to the, to cover the, the war in Iraq. I was in Argentina at the time, and I didn't know what to expect because I, you know, I've been reading the Washington Post where I worked and other newspapers, and of course, their reporting on Hugo Chavez was very mixed. Now, I didn't really believe the reporting that he was sort of the antichrist, but I did believe, well, you know, maybe there's some things going on here that are not on the up and up. And so I was I was shocked when I think it was the first interview I did a group of young, uh, older black women, uh, uh, Venezuela I think is about the same percentage of blacks as it is in the United States, 12 or 13%. A group of black women who were vendors selling like tomatoes, and f- vegetables, and things like that. And I asked them what they thought, and it was about four of them, each and every one. I love Hugo Chavez. He's the first per- first person who ever listened to us. And one of them said, so I'll never forget it. She said, she said, the only thing bad about Hugo Chavez is that he's not my son. That's from the ground up. That's when you get the reality of the situation, right? And so that's what's missing. That's why journalism is so flawed and really not just flawed, but counterproductive. It actually is at cross ends, cross purposes for democracy.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukman is here. John Jeter is here, and we have some callers on the line here, been waiting patiently. Uh, brave. I think we got you straightened out here. You there?
7: Yes, I am. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah. There you go. Go ahead.
7: Oh, there we go. All right. Um, first, I got to say, I disagree with you, Jackie. I, I, being a comic book nerd myself, I love a well-developed uh, villain, but that's the only place that I disagree <laughs> with you guys on. Um, I'm really enjoying the conversation. I, I, I guess I, what I wanted to uh post you guys is um where, where do you uh it, it doesn't seem like um it, it does not I I may have said this before in the past call I don't know but it it doesn't seem like uh the West, Western media, uh US Empire is going to learn anything they never do, but it doesn't seem like they're gonna learn anything from the loss that's impending. Um because they're they're continuing to push the narrative. I I, I don't see any relief coming from which i wouldn't expect but i don't see any relief coming from the um from the upcoming uh elections where these democrats are going to get washed right i, I don't i wouldn't expect and i don't expect um the republicans to do anything and i don't expect the american people to smart enough enough to go uh and vote third party so i guess my question is um wow <sighs> well where, where do you guys see us going from here? Like Ms. Mr. Jeter brought brought a point of deindustrialization, and, and I would think that that, that I, w- I would agree that that is the the direction to go to um, to to save a population to to pull ourselves out of the blackness. But I, I only I only see that being a possibility for nations outside the U.S. outside of the West, possibly right. But I, I just don't see that for here because. They've worked pretty hard to uh, take control of everything, including the minds of the people. So and I don't see them um, readily giving it back. And I don't see the people readily rising up other than to maybe go into violence when them twenty seven dollar packs of meat get even more expensive in the grocery stores. So I guess my my question, I know it's a hard question to ask, but where where do you guys see this thing going? And um, how how do we possibly pull ourselves, pull our head out of the water on this, if, if that makes sense?
0: That's an excellent question, uh, Brave, and I'm glad you asked it because I feel like what you're speaking to is really the logic of empire, which is different than just plain logic. Right. Because the logic of empire says that uh, there must be infinite expansion on a planet of finite resources. That's a contradiction uh, uh, right there. And also, with all these resources going for the maintenance of that empire, and you know, uh, very little for uh, people's actual needs. Well, this then brings about yet uh, uh, another contradiction. And you're right that we can't uh, depend on the capitalist class to sort of act. Basically with good sense, if we just call it what it is, things that would definitely be in their benefit and humanity's benefit, at least if we want to continue living on the planet Earth uh, because of the profit motive. And so the only counterforce to that, that that I can see would be a uh, a movement of poor, working, and oppressed people that are clear about uh, who the enemy is and what the system is that's harming them and go about the business of overturning it. Now, that won't happen on its own. Uh, uh, class consciousness, socialist consciousness, revolutionary consciousness will not develop on its own only with the uh, intentional intervention of revolutionary organizers. But I'll say that becomes a whole lot harder if you don't have a connection to these same communities. Uh, We've got a couple more callers here. Next up is Keith. Tell us what's on your mind.
2: Oh, hey, guys. Uh, Great show. I just wanted to let you know that uh, I've been doing my own uh, kind of research, which isn't that hard, and I've concluded that the only uh, war that Russia's losing right now is the info war. Let's take, for example, Uh, deaths in other war-torn areas, namely the one that Mohammed bin Salman has bombed into uh, smithereens, that country we all know is Yemen. They've had over 400,000 deaths, including children. Syria, and we add up the Somalia. I'm not going to get the numbers and start boring people. Then we look at the history of Russia, and we look at southern Africa. They came to the rescue of the uh, people in the anti-anti-anti-apartheid movement, they went to Mozambique to help help black people. They saved the Ethiopians in the Battle of Adwa, uh, Adwa by providing arms. So, how in the world does everyone end up seeing Vladimir Putin as some guy with a cat and a monocle in a James Bond movie, and now he's Mr. No or some you know uh, villain from a James Bond movie? So, I'm getting back to the info war. So, how do you get people from the United States of amnesia to start doing simple things like fact-checking this stuff, or at least without the uh, help of, thank God we have your show, we have some other alternative media, but the information war is still being warned by the U.S., and I'd like to hear you, you and your guest's comment on that. Thank you.
0: Definitely. Really appreciate that, Keith. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, John Jeter, definitely curious your thoughts here. Uh,
6: yeah, I'd like to quickly answer uh, the last caller and the previous caller, just very quickly, uh, I agree completely The uh, you know, that Russia is, I think, by choice, uh, 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 losing the information war. They've decided it would seem to fight the ground war uh, at the expense of the information war, I think because they understand that the United States is in a bubble, the West, to a lesser extent, is in a bubble, and that the rest of the world sort of understands what's going on. Uh, The one example the caller mentioned was Africa, and he's exactly right. Uh, Russia has a very mixed uh, reputation in Africa, let's say, and really throughout the developing the global south, right? Uh, They were uh, allies of much of Africa and the developing world during the Cold War, but not the most effective allies. That has to be said, right? They were they were helpful, they were useful, but there was a feeling, uh, and this was articulated by Castro during the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a feeling that they didn't really have skin in the game, so to speak, that they weren't in it to win it, that they were to some extent bound to pressure. Uh, from the U.S., from the West, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah, they, that they weren't, you know, a full-throated ally the way that the Global South needed, uh, and so they've got a mixed reputation, you know, in, in Africa um, uh, and throughout the global, the global South. But still their reputation is far better than the United States. I mean, the United States, you know, China has a mixed record now, you know, in terms of what they're doing in Africa, but you can't compare that to the United States. The United States is just universally loathed as uh, uh, as murdering thieves. And there's just no other way to put it. The previous caller, I just want to say very quickly, I don't know what's going to happen. I can tell you two things very quickly. I can tell you what has happened, right? At this juncture, uh, during uh, the wor- uh, World War, uh, before World War II, during the Great Depression, you, you can kind of go one of two ways: fascism and socialism. And the United States went towards socialism, right? Uh, Germany went through towards fascism, right? Uh, I-, I, you know, I don't know which is going to happen. Organizing is important if you're going to go towards socialism. I don't know if we're at that point where we can do that. But I'll say this: I'll say this. I hope that Black Americans. Black Americans specifically understand what has historically happened in the United States in moments of crises like this. And what has happened is that whites are reconciled with blacks, sometimes after a backlash, a violent backlash, such as what we're seeing now in the country. They've reconciled with whites. Whites and blacks have worked together. They've rebuilt the infrastructure, both in terms of material and in terms of the economic and even intellectual and artistic infrastructure, right? But eventually whites turn on us again because they identify as whites and not workers. I think black people should be cautious of that. We need to be wary of that. We need to understand that if we do start to rebuild this country, whites are likely to turn on us again. It's just. It's just ingrained to the culture right now, and I hope that we will guard against that and carve out some of this country for ourselves, not to be capitalists, right, but to build a community really modeled off of the African village, right, where everyone, you know, maybe not everyone owns uh, anything, but everyone's needs are met. I hope that that's where we end up uh, uh, in dealing with this crisis that is looming. Jackie Lugman, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean that that's that's definitely something to chew on, John, but I but I just want to say to brave first I like my villains like 007 uh Dr. <laughs> evil uh or Blowfield with his cat. Nobody knew why Blowfield was so evil and he wanted to destroy the world, but he was very charismatic about it and he had a fluffy adorable cat who went along with it. So that's that's how I like my villain. So, you know, we can, we can disagree <laughs> on that and, and that's cool. But the thing I do agree on, John, is is what you just said and I think that's a really hard conversation to have, particularly in organizing circles, sometimes definitely in pro- progressive circles and and even in leftist circles. But I think it is something that can be mitigated with the very thing that we're talking about we need to do and that's organize, right? If we organize, along class lines, if we are clear about class allegiances and we can get people to understand, people of all races and ethnicities and backgrounds and geographies to understand where their class allegiance lie and and understand that that is where our unity is, then, then maybe we'll have more sticking power with this thing. But I think that, There is not enough organizing along class unity because these issues of racial animus and gender animus and other types of schisms come up. And maybe, John, I don't know, maybe we don't know how to deal with them well enough because we still, I think, in organizing circles haven't confronted the reality of any of those things, the history of any of those things. So we're we're not I think some of us are not entirely clear on how to answer these questions when they come up of what, you know, when we're organizing with people, uh, you know, for a union. And, you know, you, you get somebody who comes in from the from the corporate side and say, you know, the blacks, they just want to take. All of your benefits, and they just, you know, the blacks just want (laughs) to take your stuff. And and it's like it's like that kind of talk. I've seen it happen. That kind of talk paralyzes people. And I realize that I think we have, and by we, I do mean those of us who are in organizing circles. I'm not talking about anybody who's not doing this work. I think this is a weakness that I see among us. See, we in this conversation are clear on the history and we are voracious receptors of the history. I mean, in our spare time, we're, we're reading it and we're studying it, but I don't think that's true of a lot of people, or at least maybe not enough. I, and I guess that is once again, my cynicism creeping its head up over my optimism that really wants to keep that in check. But I don't know, John, I see where this is this constant struggle in uh organizing that we're going to have to confront if we want to get to, uh, you know, the other side of building a society that meets the needs of all people on the other side of this societal collapse, because that's coming. Right. I think the question is, who is going to build the society after that and what it's going to look like? Because the right wing, they're clear on what their goals are.
6: I, I couldn't agree more, Jackie. I, you know, you you uh, are an organizer. I, I'm just a writer. I just sit on the sidelines and watch and write about what I see. You're an organizer, and that's that's where that's going to be the fulcrum of our change right we what we need we need organizers like you the people who are leaders to the Daruba Dur- Ben Wahads and the and the uh, Anthony Dr Anthony Monteros and you know, all these people who we have sort of marginalized and in some cases killed we need an exhumation right we need a seance. we need to commune with Malcolm with Fred Hampton with, with Stokely Carmichael Kwame uh, uh, Turene Stokely Carmichael we need to we need to kick all of the, these good new Negroes out the room because they're no use to They're 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 double agents. but we need to exhume these people. I would say and talk, what were their ideas? Why is it that Malcolm told us? Malcolm told us that we're not, we're not frustrated white men, right? We have our own identity. We need to sort of revisit what Malcolm was saying and, and, and Kwame Ture and Fred Hampton.
0: Definitely. Looking to the struggles of the past to build our future. That's a very important uh, uh, way to study as we build this uh, mass people's movement that we all know is necessary. And what we we're discussing, I think, are, you know, some of uh, the issues and uh, disagreements that can sometime sort of come up uh, in the organizational spaces. But I think that ultimately the only way to deal with them is to confront them head on and build internally as we build a new society outwardly. But that's going to do it for today here on by any means necessary on radio spudic and watch in D C want to thank John Jeter so much for joining us today we'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode so as always we'll see you next time peace
2: by any means necessary